0: you have not bypassed 2.1 a netrunner reboot project podcast episode 12 peace and violence Hey, this is Remy. The title card for this week is from Sensei, which came in trace amount, a Jinteki code gate, with a res cost of 0 and a strength of 5, also just 1 influence. The subroutine on Sensei is, for the remainder of this run, each piece of ice encountered except Sensei gains an end-the-run subroutine, after all its other subroutines and the flavor text says peace and violence both must lead to the same place the artist of this particular card is sandara tang and i'll be covering that in the maker's eye segment at the very end of the episode a sensei is not a very good piece of ice though because its res cost was originally three and the reboot project has dropped it as low as it can go all the way down to zero. We'll also be uh, covering a lot about ice in this episode. Uh, A couple of short segments about femme fatale before the very long segment about ice placement. But kicking it all off here is going to be another set of previews for Mind and Mayhem. Precognition, mind and mayhem, Week five. We have one more card, or one more new card for the anarchs. for the laughs. It's a run event that costs one and has three influence. You draw a card and make a run on HQ. You may essentially imp, right, trash the first card that you come across. Uh, when the Corp scores an agenda, Add this card to your grip from your heap. So that's a nice little bit of recursion there. Of course, when you trash that first card with this, that's another credit from the Glee console to go along with uh, the Horde, the new identity. Now there are three rebooted cards. That's cards that are not new, not newly designed, but brought in from later points in the Fantasy Flight card cycle. For example, we have two cards coming back from Flashpoint. That was the sixth cycle that Fantasy Flight made. The reboot project only actually goes all the way through the fourth cycle. The first of those is System Outage. This is an Anarch Current event with a cost of one and two influence. Whenever the Corp draws one or more cards, the Corp loses one click, if it's not the first time drawing cards this turn. And no changes to this one. This one just imported straight in. Frantic coding is another Anarch event with a cost of two. That's down from originally three. And three influence. You look at the top ten cards of your stack. Install any programs there for five credits less and then trash whatever is not a program. And then process automation from terminal directive ...is a neutral event that costs zero and is one influence, you can gain three credits, used to be two, gain three credits, and draw one card. And then the first two Haas Bioroid cards are also spoiled for us, well, not counting our exclusive spoiler last week, Nostalgiaologists. The first one spoiled this week was Microtransactions, an operation that costs one and is two influence, gain eight credits, then lose one credit for each card in the runner's grip. The big boy helpfully did a rundown for us. He says to save people on the math, this is bad if they have five plus cards. That's because you'd spend one, gain eight, so that's a seven credit gain, but if they have six cards, well, you've only, you're have only you only gaining one because you're going to gain seven and then lose six. So he says bad if they have five plus cards, Beanstalk if they have four, Hedge Fund if they have three, IPO if they have two, Bananas if they have zero or one. And then Nootropic's campaign, an asset that's a res cost of one and a trash of four, is just one influence. When your turn begins, gain one credit if there are more cards in HQ than in the runner's grip. If there are at least three more, you may also draw a card. Sure Gamble Femme Fatal. Going back to the core set for this one, it's a criminal killer with a, an install cost of 9, a strength of 2, which is pretty good for an icebreaker to start with a strength of 2, just one influence, that's a clue for you. For one credit, you can break a sentry subroutine, that's a pretty normal uh, cost. For two credits, credits, you can boost it by one strength, that is not good. But then, of course, there's the special text, When you install Femme Fatale, choose an installed piece of ice. When you encounter that ice, you may pay one credit per subroutine on that ice to bypass it. So, this card is very much worth it in many decks. Again, it's only one influence. Often, when something is just one influence, that's an indication Well, I guess it could indicate two things. It could indicate that one, it's not good anywhere but in faction. Or two, it is very good everywhere out of faction. But especially it's good against ice that's big and expensive to break. And it's important to note too, this is something I didn't figure out, I think, very early on, is it doesn't matter what subtype the ice is. Right? It's not like it can only break Sentry subroutines It is a killer So it can break Sentry subroutines But it's not interacting with the ice It's just swinging past it It's just bypassing the ice So uh, A good one to include Against really big ice For a nice one-of Or that you can deal with a problem You know what Let me talk about a little bit more in the next segment Anonymous tip. Femme fatale. I wanted to go into a little more detail here, and so this seemed like the better place to do it. All killers are a little weird. Mimic has a fixed strength, you can't boost it. Ninja has a strength of zero, but then it boosts by increments of five. Pipeline, I guess, is pretty normal for shapers because it holds its strength. And then to this point in the card pool, the only other killer is FEM. It's by far the most expensive to install at nine compared to three for Mimic, three for Pipeline, and four for Ninja. I mean you could almost install all three of those for the same cost as FEM. And it's fairly expensive to use as a killer. You know, even the corset has four. Centuries that cost four or more and if you're having to boost twice at two credits a piece that gets expensive really fast for fem coming up in the second cycle the spin cycle in about the middle is a killer called garot or i guess Garot, however you want to pronounce that it is to get that one credit boost It's otherwise, it's the same as FEM, same strength too. It costs six to install, used to be seven before reboot. So three cheaper, but it takes two MU. And again, that cost is still six just to get that one strength for one credit boost. So that's a big chunky killer. So it's understandable. They, They don't want sentries to be too easy to break. But obviously the reason you're running FEM is not because you're trying to defeat killers, although it can in a pinch. Its obvious strength is its special ability. And even that big cost, nine, can be warranted if you want to hit that ice multiple times. Think about Heimdall as an example. You can break Heimdall by spending three clicks. So you know that's your whole turn. Click to run, click, click, click through Heimdall. Or Corroder will break it for seven credits. Or Femme Fatal will bypass it for just three. One credit per subroutine. So imagine a situation where you need to get by Heimdall. You have your Corroder that you install for two. Femme you install for nine. Well, you're down seven credits right off the bat. But then Corroder breaks for seven and Femme bypasses for three. You've made back four. Now you're only down by three. The second time you need to run through Heimdall, you're actually ahead using Fem rather than Corroder. And if you have to keep running through it, let's say it's on R and D. Hey, that's a good target for Fem. Or think about Tollbooth. We discussed this in the timing structure last week. That both Tollbooth and Fem Fatal have the when encountered conditional trigger but since when you're running it's the runner's turn the runner gets to go first the toll booth toll doesn't get exacted before fem can bypass it so whereas gordian blade the best decoder can break toll booth for 7 that's the toll of 3 credits and then 4 more to break it 7 total to get past it fem Will bypass it for only one. That means that you will have even with just one time going past toll booth, it's cheaper to use Fem install for nine bypass for one, than Gordian blade install for four break for seven. So these are the situations where Fem is good. You're not probably going to use Fem on, a, you know, some weak little thing like Enigma unless you're desperate. I wanted to introduce some of the comments from the FAC, the Fantasy Flight created. They started making the FAC just a couple of months after the game started, but uh, their final FAC document they put out just about a month before ending support for the game. It's still available. You can still find it on their website. They had a few card clarifications that I'll just share from in the FAC about Femme Fatale. One is that femme does not need to match the strength of a piece of ice in order to bypass it. So that's good. Again, it's separate ability from the um, paid ability of boosting the strength to interact with the ice. The runner can spend the credit from Cyberfeeder to pay for the bypass ability. So that's nice. And then uh, this detail... I'm not sure why this is necessary to say, but um, maybe to help you understand the, the icebreaker a little better. If Femme Fatale is uninstalled, the runner cannot bypass the ice chosen by Femme Fatale when it was installed. The ability is no longer active since the card is no longer active. Even if that copy of Femme Fatale is reinstalled, it is treated as a new copy and cannot bypass anything other than the ice chosen when it was just installed. Sounds like some rules lawyer was really trying to uh, crank open a loophole in the rules, but to me that just makes sense, so I'm not going to belabor the point anymore. And then later on in the document, there is a, a list of actual frequently asked questions, and one of those is, The runner uses femme fatale to bypass a piece of ice. If there was a chum installed before the bypassed ice, are the subroutines on the bypassed ice broken, or does the runner take the three net damage? The answer is, the subroutines are not broken, because the ice was bypassed, and the runner takes three net damage. There are some interactions for Femme Great card. Corset card that... Gets a lot of use even much later in the card pool. Archived Memories. Shields Up, Understanding Ice by David Sutcliffe from the Satellite Uplink. Returning to an article by David. And this is one that, this is a concept that when I was first playing the game, I really didn't pay a lot of attention to. I didn't understand the nuance of this. It's part of why I'm so interested in it now. And it's the idea of where you place ice. Because that's part of the skill of the game, is putting ice in the right places. There is some ice that is more effective in, over a central server, and some ice is more effective over a remote server. But understanding what these different types of ice do is really what this article is about. You know, we th- I think about ice, my first thought is I'm like, well, it's a sentry, it's a code gate, it's a barrier, or whatever. But then there's almost like there's a, a hidden uh, designation categorization for each piece of ice. That's a combination of its strength and its subroutines. And not even just how many subroutines, but what the subroutines are. And that's what this article gets at. And helps us to think about ice in a more nuanced way. To have a more strategic understanding of using ice. And I'm going to go ahead and read this entire article. It's pretty long. But it doesn't even have everything... I want to include about ice, it's just, so I'll have to come back to it in another episode and, and talk about ice placement and analyzing ice a little bit more. This article was from February of 2014 on uh, David Sutcliffe's blog, The Satellite Uplink. And as a header, a head note, a headnote, there will be several pieces of ice mentioned in this article that are not part of the current card pool that I've discussed on this podcast. And so when I hit those, I'll briefly explain what they are. And in the show notes, as usual, I'll have links to these cards if you want to see them for yourself. Here we go. Ice is possibly the most important card type in the game of Netrunner. It's what the corp uses to protect its agendas, and it's what the runner has to structure their whole deck to be able to bypass. There's probably No single topic worth talking about more. And it's why I've labored on it in the past, analyzing the ice from worlds up and down and back to front. As a side note, if you want to follow the link in the show notes to this article, there's a link right there in the article that goes to how he analyzed in pretty exhaustive detail, certainly far more exhaustive detail than I would try to convey in audio form. Um, the top 16 decks from 2013 worlds, and what their ice composition looked like. Anyway, back to the article. Stats and numbers from the past are great, but it's also important to understand the theory that drives these successful decks and successful ice configurations. That's the topic I want to talk about today. Breaking down ice into various distinct groups and talking about when to use them how to maximize them, and also how to avoid your ICE working at cross-purposes to the rest of your deck. Let's start with the absolute basics and work upwards. ICE is what the corp uses to defend its servers from the runner. But precisely how the ICE achieves that goal can come in a wide variety of ways. Although ice comes in a bewildering array of sizes and shapes, it can actually be divided quite neatly into two camps. ETR. The most obvious way ice can stop the runner is simply to carry a straightforward end-the-run subroutine. That does exactly what it says on the tin. And it's perhaps the most commonly played type of ice with common examples being cards like Wall of Static, Enigma, or Chimera, right up to the imposing Curtain Wall. Chimera is an ice that's coming in the very next pack. We'll be talking about it in just a few weeks. And what it lets you do when you res it is pick the subtype. But all it does is have uh, one and the run subroutine, only a strength one. Whereas Curtain Wall doesn't come along until... Well, into the second cycle, and it is a barrier that has a strength of six, a res of 14, uh, and in and, and three end the run subroutines. It also has extra four strength if it's the outside ice, so it becomes a strength 10 at that point. Playing with ETR ice forces the runner to install the appropriate icebreaker in order to proceed. So that's the first type. The second type, tax. Taxing ice is more porous than ETR ice, as it doesn't carry a fixed end-the-run subroutine. The runner can usually get past this type of ice without needing to install an icebreaker. It's just a matter of how much it will cost them. This tax can come in the form of a trace attempt. They have to pay credits to match for example, Caduceus, or a bioroid subroutine that will end the run if the runner doesn't pay a cost, for example, Heimdall, Victor. But the tax can also be one that never threatens to end the run at all, but imposes a high enough cost that the runner chooses not to run past it anyway, for example, Hunter or Data Raven as well as asking the runner to pay a charge in clicks or credits, taxing ICE can also take the form of more aggressive ICE that deals damage or trashes programs. For example, Chum, Neural Katana, or the Deadly Janus, forcing the runner to pay for their access in blood or premium-priced software. Because taxing ICE doesn't carry a straightforward end-the-run subroutine, the runner doesn't need to install an icebreaker to go past. But the cost of not doing so is frequently quite high, meaning the runner will often prefer to find an icebreaker anyway. The choice of which ice to play, ETR or taxing, is a critical one. It's definitely a point where many players go wrong, often by playing ice that they like or have seen used effectively in other decks, but which doesn't fit into their current deck. The Bluffer's Guide to Ice As a generalization, ETR ice is better in the early game, when the runner doesn't have any icebreakers but rapidly gets worse as the runner builds their rig. This means ETR ice often works best in decks that are trying to score agendas quickly. Put an agenda behind your ETR ice, then bounce the runner out for a turn, and score the agenda before they can come back equipped with an icebreaker. You'll see a lot of ETR ice in decks like HB Biotic Rush but pretty much every deck needs some element of ETRIs to help them score agendas in the early game. By contrast, taxing ICE is actually very bad at protecting agendas in remote servers, as when the runner feels an agenda point is on the line, they are usually willing to pay whatever tax is necessary to gain access. However, taxing ICE makes repeated runs on central servers expensive. And, taxing ice often holds its value more once the runner has icebreakers installed, making it better in slower decks, looking to tire the runner's economy out over a longer game. All this is what the ice does when the runner doesn't have an icebreaker. But I want to overlay how the ice changes function when an icebreaker is present. Disclaimer. The following section talks about how ice changes as icebreakers are played. I make several assumptions about the icebreakers you will most commonly face, and if you are facing different icebreakers, then you'll have to adjust accordingly. For guidance, I'm going to primarily discuss the most commonly played competitive icebreakers, Mimic, Garot, Ninja, Yogg.0, Gordian Blade, and Corroder. I will discuss special cases like Femme later. Binary ETR ice. I've coined the term binary ice to describe ETR ice that is basically either on or off, depending on whether the runner has an appropriate breaker or not. The most perfect example of this is a low-strength code gate like Enigma, which is broken for free by Yog.0. But I would expand the off side to include ice that is broken for a minimal credit cost. For example, Mimic will punch through Turret for just one credit, and Corroder will break Wall of Static for just two credits. Where precisely the line is drawn for minimal cost is a subjective one. I think breaking ice for three credits, for example, Corroder versus Bastion, uh, Bastion is a barrier from the first deluxe expansion that has a res stre- a cost of four and a strength of four, just one end, sub- end the run subroutine. I think breaking ice for three credits is a real gray area that probably depends on how efficiently the runner can generate those credits. But once it's costing the runner four credits plus to break past a piece of ice, I don't think you can really call that a minimal cost. Uh, as an aside, once again, and perpetually. Look at the difference one credit makes. Right? He says two credits, yeah, that's minimal. Three, uh, I don't know. Four, nope. <laughs> Whereas I would normally think two, four, that's about the same. But one credit makes a big difference. A binary ETR ice, therefore, is ice that carries a huge amount of value up until the point where the runner installs an icebreaker, then sees most of that value wiped away. 10 turns into the game, it probably costs you more to install an ice wall on the end of your server than it costs the runner to break it. So why bother? Binary ETRIs tends not to care too much about bad publicity for the corp. The runner can use those credits to break the ice for free, but the ice wasn't putting up much of an obstacle anyway. Binary ETRIs can be supported by effects that trash programs, effectively turning them back on by removing the icebreakers. Analog ETR ice. This is ice that carries an ETR subroutine, but which is also large enough to still provide a sizable obstacle to the runner once they have installed an icebreaker. We've already discussed that bastion sits right on the dividing line of being binary or analog, but some more obvious examples of analog, ice, are cards like Wall of Thorns, five credits to fully break with Corroder. Tollbooth, including the Toll, seven credits to break with Gordian Blade. Or Archer, eight credits to break with Ninja. While analog ice carries on functioning to a high level when the runner has an icebreaker, this usually comes at a price, with these ice frequently costing much more to res than binary ice and being vulnerable to cards like inside job or forged activation orders. Analog ETR ice can be badly degraded by handing out bad publicity, which gives the runner free credits to throw at breaking through the amount that this impacts the ice depends largely on how much bad publicity we're talking about and how much it costs to break the ice to begin with but you can find yourself paying for a wall of thorns that's not significantly more of an obstacle to the runner than a wall of static analog ETR ice is often but not always best positioned over central servers when there's no icebreaker around. It's expensive to res something big like a Hadrian's wall when a wall of static would do the same job. But once the runner has an icebreaker, they can pay to punch through the Hadrian's wall if there's an agenda on the other side. If it's over R&D or HQ, though, the runner has to pay a lot of cash to get past that Hadrian's wall just for a 20% chance of hitting an agenda. Binary Taxing Ice Similar to Binary ETR Ice, Binary Taxing Ice is those pieces of ice where the taxation is virtually entirely removed when the runner plays an icebreaker. Some good examples are Neural Katana, one credit to break with Mimic versus three clicks to redraw lost cards from net damage. Or Victor 1.0, completely ignored by Yog.0 instead of taxing two clicks to break the Bioroid subroutines. Well, that, that used to be true. In Reboot, Victor is now strength four, and so not completely ignored by Yog. The difference of one strikes again. Binary taxing ice usually does care about bad publicity, unlike binary ETR ice. Although it costs a minimal amount to break binary taxing ice, the whole point of playing taxing ice was to economically drain the runner, so handing out any amount of bad publicity often runs contrary to that goal. Binary taxing ice can be supported by playing assets and upgrades with a high trash cost which, or which further drain the runner's resources. For example, red herrings. Or perhaps Shiloh City Grid. He also name-checks here some future cards, like Private Contracts, Eve Campaign, and Caprice Nisei. In this style of play, the runner can pay to get past your ice, but can't achieve anything once they're through. Analog Taxing Ice You've probably got the hang of this by now, but Analog Taxing Ice is the bigger pieces of ice that still require some effort to break through once the runner has their icebreakers, and in many cases, it may even be cheaper to carry on paying the tax instead of breaking the subroutines with an icebreaker. The popular barrier Eli 1.0 is perhaps the cheapest ice that we can consider analog taxing ice. Eli arrives in the sixth pack and is a four-strength bioroid barrier with two end-the-run subroutines. Even with a corroder in play, it costs four credits to break through, and it may well be better to use two clicks instead. Other examples might be Flare, which also comes in that sixth pack, Future Proof. It's a six-strength NBN Ice with a Trace 6 subroutine that trashes a hardware, does two unpreventable meat damage, and ends the run five credits to break with Ninja, or fight the trace attempt. Or the big bioroids like Heimdall and Janus, frequently easier to click past than break with icebreakers. As with binary taxing ice, bad publicity usually works against the principle of taxing the runner's economy with taxing ice. You will rapidly destroy Eli as a tax, if you hand over bad publicity counters, but some big analog taxing ice, particularly bioroids, can be so prohibitively expensive to break with icebreakers that even bad publicity doesn't help much. If you hand the runner three bad publicity credits, he may still click past Janus and take a brain damage, rather than spending another five credits of his own money to break all the subroutines with Ninja. At the top of this section, I said I would discuss the impacts of some of the non-standard icebreakers, like Femme Fatale. Femme ability to bypass ice makes her virtually unique. And it's easy to explain both her power and popularity when you understand the difference between binary and analog ice. Fem is perhaps the best card for converting troublesome analog ice into binary ice which can completely disrupt the structure of the corpse defenses. A toll booth could cost you seven credits to break with Gordian Blade, or one to bypass with Femme Fatale. A Heimdall could be swung past for three instead of seven, and even the lethal Archer or Janus become little more than speed bumps once they're in Femme's sights. And then at this point, he goes on to discuss two other non-standard breakers that are coming in future packs, Atman and Knight. And then he's also, so I'm going to skip that. He also analyzes two tournament-winning decks and examines why they used the ice they did. And so I'm going to go through those, but uh, while both of these decks contain a number of cards that are outside the scope of this podcast's card pool, most of the ice is present, or we've already covered it, or we will cover it. Again, you can check out the article yourself for the full rundown and get links to to these decks there. Exemplary Examples To show you how the ice you use can be mapped to match your deck's objective, let's look at a couple of successful decks and see how their ice was sculpted to suit their purposes. Deck number one, HB Fast Advance this deck was one of the early winners in the plugged in tour season in 2013 and i like it because it very clearly demonstrates the binary etris in action there is a very clear plan here the barriers and code gates are all binary etris that support the deck in rushing out its early agendas as those agendas are three twos the deck can move quickly to install them behind ice without having to invest in advancing them. And the ability of engineering the future pays back as the deck makes that rapid expansion of installs. The deck forces the runner to install fractors and decoders to break through this ice. But because the deck is also moving quickly, the runner may not have time to find a killer for sentry ice, leaving them exposed to the program trashing of roto turret and Grimm, which is a neutral Strength 5 sentry that comes in the 7th pack, which trashes a program while also giving the corp a bad publicity, which then send them back to square one. The deck's cheap binary ice is turned off by the icebreakers, but program destruction turns it back on again. Notice also that Travis had no qualms about running the full playset of Grim. The bad publicity he was handing out wasn't a problem if the runner didn't have any icebreakers to spend it on. As well as the ice that the deck does play, some of the most interesting choices are about the ice that it doesn't play. When Travis posted his winning deck list onto the Board Game Geek forums, one of the very first questions he was asked was this one. Why do you want to run Grim instead of Ichi and Enigma instead of Viper? which is a three-strength code gate that has two tracer subroutines that come in the next pack, comes in the next pack. Bastion instead of Eli. On the face of it, these are all great questions. Ichi costs the same as Grim, but trashes two programs and doesn't hand out a bad publicity. Viper costs the same as Enigma, but has plus two strength, so doesn't fail against Yogg. And Eli costs one less than Bastion and brings a second subroutine. They all sound better than the neutral options Travis decided to play instead. So why was he ignoring his in-faction H.B. Ice? Hopefully you already know the answer to this question after reading the rest of this blog. The answer being because those are taxing ice, not E.T.R. Ice. Taxing ice gives the runner the chance to steal those early 3-2 agendas that Travis is trying to score. On top of that, if you give the runner the option of paying a tax, they don't need to install an icebreaker. And if they don't need to install an icebreaker, then your program trashing ice loses most or all of its value. Travis Deck had a very clear plan, and taxing ice was not part of that plan. Deck number two, NBN Midseasons This deck took Jesse Vandover to the semifinals of the World Championship, so we know it's a strong deck, but it's striking just how different the ice lineup is from that played by Travis Day in his HB ETF deck. Of all the ice played here, only four pieces carry a hard end-the-run subroutine that forces the runner to find an icebreaker two copies of Ice Wall, and two Enigmas. The other ten pieces of Ice are a mixture of various taxation effects, with Eli ending the run unless the runner is prepared to pay a heavy toll in credits or clicks, Shadow and Data Raven threatening to land tags that the runner must pay clicks and credits to clear, and a lone Ichi lurking for unwary last-click runs like Travis Day's deck, Jesse's deck also has a very clear plan, and that is midseason replacements. Now here he's about to discuss two cards that come in the 6th pack. Again, future proof, midseason replacements and project Beal. Midseason replacements is a 5 cost NBN operation which you can play if the runner just stole an agenda. It does a trace which gives the runner tags equal to the difference between the trace and link strengths. Project Beal is a three-two agenda that can be over advanced, and for each extra advancement, provides an extra agenda point. A midseason replacements is a very powerful card that combines to lethal effect with psychographics and Project Beal to mean the deck can potentially score seven agenda points. In a single click. To play mid-season replacements effectively, you need two things to be true. The runner has to steal an agenda, and you need to have more cash than the runner when that happens, so that you can ensure landing a big trace attempt. Jesse's use of taxing ice works perfectly to meet both those aims. The runner can score agendas. Only four of Jesse's 14 ice actually end the run if the runner doesn't have any icebreakers. Cards like Ichi and Eli can be clicked through with impunity, and both Shadow and Data Raven do nothing to stop the runner whatsoever. The runner is drained economically. All this taxing ice forces the runner to spend clicks or credits, and in the case of the tagging ice, The threat of building up tags and enabling psychographics means the runner is forced to spend both clicks and credits clearing the tags after the runner is completed. Jesse wants the runner to get into R&D and HQ. He wants them to access card. He wants them to score agendas so that he can spring his mid-season replacements trap. What he doesn't want, though, is for the runner to be able to access R&D or HQ cheaply. Stealing one agenda is perfect, but if the runner steals three agendas, there could well be a problem. The ice he's chosen is perfect for this, and for funneling the runner onto a diet of slow and steady R&D accesses, while Jesse can spend his time building cash and preparing to spring his trap. Summing up. If you want a clear example of how the value of ice changes, based on the deck, then look no further than the contrast between Jesse's NBN deck and Travis Day's HB above. Remember those Eli and Ichi that Travis decided not to play in his HB deck even though they were in faction? Well, they are right there in NBN, with Jesse Vandover deciding they were worth spending a third of his influence to bring their taxation effects into his NBN deck. It's not that Eli and Ichi are bad cards, far from it, but they didn't work with Travis' game plan while they fit perfectly into Jesse's. Similarly, Jesse could have chosen to replace the Eli and Ichi in his NBN deck with the binary ETR of the wall of static and ice walls that Travis used and saved himself influence in doing so, but that would have run contrary to his plan too. Wall of Static does little to help him force the runner into slow and steady central server accesses, as it's either a complete block on access or virtually no obstacle at all. They both played completely different ice, but they also both made the right choice, which was to play the ice that suited their deck's plan. What you should be taking from this is that the concept of good ice and bad ice is too simplistic. The decision between whether to play Eli or Bastion, Wall of Static, should be more than a simple decision of whether you have the influence or not because they do different things. Eli will tax the runner. Wall of Static is binary ETR, while Bastion can either function as overpriced binary ETR or as analog ETR, depending on the rest of your deck. The ice cannot be taken in isolation from the rest of the deck, and instead you've got to know what your deck is trying to achieve in order to play the correct ice to support that strategy. Hopefully you found this a cool article. Get it? Ice is cold. See? And it will help you in designing better defenses for your own corp decks in the future. Uh, once again, that lengthy article was by David Sutcliffe from his blog, The Satellite Uplink, entitled Shields Up, Understanding Ice. And as I said at the outset, I have more to say on this topic. Uh, to be more accurate, I have more to share that I have found on this topic because I don't actually have a lot to say on this topic but I am very interested in um, analyzing the different pieces of ice and sorting them into these different buckets and that may be something I do uh, through this podcast as I go through but I'm trying to avoid having 70 minute episodes so I'm going to cut it off right here for this week and move on The Maker's Eye, Sandara Tang. There are actually only four cards in the entire reboot card pool that this artist has drawn. But there's one each in the core set, What Lies Ahead, and Trace Amount. So we've already seen three of them. Worm, which is a green dragon. Draco, which is a white dragon. And Sensei which is the title card for this episode. And is a very, if you look at yeah, some of these, it's funny, some of these pieces of ice, like I never really, or some of this artwork, I just never looked at really closely. But some of them are just so beautifully detailed. And Sensei is one of those. It's very cool. So it's it's basically got this Sensei character standing in the foreground. But then behind him on the one side is this peaceful blue, uh version of the character. And the other side, in the background, is this angry, red version of the character. Uh, So really, really neat one there. And then the fourth card that Sandara did was the ubiquitous Eli 1.0, one of the best barriers in the game. Uh, That comes along, again, in a few packs. Uh, Ms. Tong is mostly a fantasy artist. I mean, Worm and Draco, Draco, rather, are dragons sensei, kind of fantasy-ish. She is from Singapore. Unsurprisingly, she also did a lot of cards for the Lord of the Rings card game, which is a fantasy game. She's also the primary artist for board games uh, Flamecraft, released in 2022, and the upcoming Critter Kitchen, released in 2024, uh, the latter of which is, is really kind of a different style from the ones that we're seeing here. But as is true with all of these artists that I've discussed, um, you can go visit their work. On her website, which is the only link I'm going to provide, Art of Sandara. Um, she has links to all of her other resources, the art station and the Instagram and the deviant art pages. So a lot of beautiful stuff there. Uh, check the link in the show notes. Many of the cards discussed in this week's episode are linked in the show notes. The music is from Alexi Action. The website for this podcast is netrunner2.1.com. That's the numeral two, the numeral one. If you want to play, that's what Riteki is for. retekifun You can also visit the Reboot Discord server to find people to play with. If you want to reach out to me, you can send me an email. My address is anreboot2.1 at gmail.com. Again, the numeral two, the numeral one. In this case, the point is an actual decimal point, a period. Or you can contact me on Discord, or BoardGameGeek, or Reddit, or StimHack. And my username is Auberman, A-W-E-B-E-R-M-A-N. I do have a BoardGameGeek and Hack thread for this podcast and group where I'm posting new episodes. So uh, if that's where you heard this, subscribe and then you'll be notified every time you I post a new one. For the AstroScript pilot program... Uh, Last week, we got into Gentecki with two articles about them, and this week, we'll have a short story about Chairman Hiro. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Somewhere, birds were singing. Hiro came to a stop at the peak of the arching wooden bridge and listened. He didn't recognize the bird song, being no expert on birds, and he looked for a time for the source of the music. He saw nothing. The trilling notes were artificial, along with everything else. The garden rambled around him. Stone-lined paths led to and from the bridge. Red-leafed Japanese maples rose to his right. Green-needled cedar trees to his left. Grasses, shrubs, and plants of a thousand descriptions surrounded him in meticulous order. Throughout, metal and plastic pillars rose. Powerful quantum supercomputers and server rigs humming within them. Above, curving metal beams supported the transplaz roof. An apt metaphor for Jinteki itself, he thought. Archaic traditions failing to conceal the future. Hiro studied the space estimating distances as he resumed his walk. So much space for ventilation, space for technicians to access the servers, at least two more additional floors. We could fit at least five times the computing power in this space, he concluded, if we were willing to cut away the deadwood of the past. kuzu sama was waiting for him on a bench. The old man was smiling, his white hair an unruly cloud behind his head. A Tanaka clone stood nearby, ready to attend to Kyuzu samas every need, while one of his identical brothers pruned the bushes not far away. Ah, Chairman, Kyuzu said, pushing himself to his feet with an ivory-headed cane. I was just thinking how splendid it is that this space exists, that it can be such a harmonious blend of utility and grace. Servers require ventilation and cooling. Humans require gardens. Why not do both at once? He bowed stiffly, leaning on the cane and Hiro did the same. It is so like you, Kuzu-sama, to see things in the best possible light, said Hiro. They walked together, crossing another wooden footbridge. Their feet and Kuzu's cane knocked hollowly on the surface. There is no reason to make the bridge from wood, Hiro thought. A plastic could work as well, be more durable, cheaper. They came to a stop at some wordless agreement, gazing down into an ink-black pool where multicolored koi drifted in and out of sight. Still, a thing is not useless just because it is old. Kuzu sama is an ancient relic, but without his support, I would never have become chairman. Across the still pond, a human technician tended to one of the server pillars, swiping through vert displays with one hand, while the other reached inside the machine. Why a human technician? Why not have a clone do that job? Hiro thought. It takes decades to train someone for this task but a clone could be grown for the purpose in weeks. We must always innovate, he said. Our purpose is not to walk the path laid down before, but to create a new one. Quite right, said Kuzu. But it is that path that has led us to this point, I think. And once the new path is created, well, then it's all the same road, is it not? He planted his cane and turned his face toward the sun, shining through the ceiling. His cybernetic eyes, Hiro noted, darkened in the sunlight. How valuable to have a trusted director in Sakai Bucho, mused the old man. I know how you value honesty and skill more than loyalty or seniority. You must find his willingness to oppose you a refreshing change. Hiro turned away, hiding his face lest it betray him. Toshiyuki Sakai? Opposing me? But why warn me? Sakai Bucho remains among our most adequate senior executives, Hiro said. Perhaps, in a different world, he might have been chairman rather than me. In a different world, chairman, old men like me would be dead, not sitting on a board of directors, waiting for an old man to die, is no longer an adequate method of career advancement. Kyuzu turned again to shuffle slowly away. Now, chairmen are replaced whenever a replacement is needed, rather than when they retire. A wise policy, that which gave you your position, and could take it away again.